Well, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to do that after the service. And uh, we're going to spend the next few moments looking at God's Word together. So let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And uh, if you're following along in one of the blue church Bibles, you can find Psalm 1 on page 448. And uh, let me invite you to stand with me if you're able and willing as we uh, gather this morning, uh, not just here in Ladera Ranch, but together with the church throughout the world, uh, we stand as an expression of our unity in Christ as we give our attention to God's word. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, please speak to us through this, uh, this psalm that has nourished and strengthened your people for uh, thousands of years. We pray that you would give us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, this past week, I had a, a conversation with a friend, sort of a strange conversation. She was talking about uh, a, a, an experience she had as a little girl. And she said that as a little girl, she used to make mud pies. Now, a lot, lots of kids make mud pies and, um, you know, pies out of mud and put them in old pots and, and play kitchen and bake them or, or whatever it is that they do. But... Uh, but, uh, and she was doing that, she would play with her siblings and her friends, and so they would make mud pies. But the thing that was really strange is she said she, she, would, eat, she would actually eat the mud pies. She would eat the dirt. And um, she knew she wasn't supposed to. Her mom would get upset with her and say, don't eat the mud pies. Um, but she kept doing it. She knew she wasn't supposed to, but she just had this, this craving for, for mud pies. <laughs> And that uh, seems strange, but she, she later discovered that she had a mineral deficiency. And because she had this mineral deficiency, she, she was craving minerals. She was craving dirt, and I don't know, the smell of it just seemed so enticing. And, and it's funny, because as she was describing this, I, I'm picturing this little girl kind of going back inside in her dress, and she's been playing outside, and her mom kind of looking at her, and she's got the dirt crumbs on her mouth and saying... Did you eat dirt again, sweetie? Yeah, I did, sorry. <laughs> Why do you do that? I don't, I don't know, Mom, I don't know. Um, how would a little girl know that she has a mineral deficiency, right? But as she was describing this, I was thinking, you know, that's a pretty good kind of uh, analogy for the time that we live in. Um, it's a pretty good picture of the way that many of us are living our lives because we have this hunger we have this craving, and we don't know exactly what it's for. I mean, we know what it feels like to be hungry or to be thirsty, 
But how would a little girl know that she has a mineral deficiency and, and, and what the source of that would be and how it should be appropriately satisfied? Uh, we have this craving, this hunger, this longing for something, and yet we can't really describe what it is. And so um, we are longing for something that will bring us life, even though we can't truly describe it. And so we fill ourselves with things. We fill ourselves with stuff. We fill ourselves with experiences. And, and often I think we know that it can't really satisfy, and yet we don't, we don't really know what to do. So we stuff ourselves with things that are not able to satisfy in the hopes that they will bring us life. But the telltale signs that that way of life is failing, I think, are visible, are beginning to become more visible in our culture. Last week we began a series called The Way of Jesus, and it's about following Jesus in the world that we live in. Uh, the, the word that the Bible uses is discipleship, following Jesus. And last week what I tried to briefly do was kind of sketch out the contours of life in 2020, I guess, in, in, in the time that we live in. Um, and what, what we said is that we are living in an age that is secular. And, and um, I, I kind of defined the word secular as like this, that what we believe in our world now is that we believe that life can be great without God. Maybe there was a time, a long time ago, when to live a great life, you know, we needed God in our lives, but no longer. Uh, we think that life can be just fine without God in our lives. The way somebody else has said uh, that uh, kind of described the time that we live in is that we want the kingdom without the king. We want the benefits of the time and the age that we live in, uh, but we don't want God as the king. We live in a time when everything is amazing and everything is beautiful. Um, you know, you can get a great cup of coffee anywhere now. I mean, think about that. I mean, when I, I never, I, I don't think I've ever had Folgers, but I mean, can you imagine living in a world where that was a great cup of coffee? You can go anywhere and get a great cup of coffee. I was driving down the freeway last week, and there was like this steady stream of Teslas passing me in the carpool lane by themselves. You know, you can drive a beautiful, non-polluting Tesla. Um, I know I'm kind of obsessed with Teslas. <laughs> we live in a time where we have more disposable income than, we ever, than the human race has ever had, where we have more opportunities for leisure than we have ever had. Everything is beautiful and amazing, and yet, at the same time, statistics are not... Uh, what st the statistics are bearing out is that life is not going well for us. Um, at this time, when it seems like everything's going great, everything should be going great, uh, the rates of depression and suicide are on the rise. Many of us experience anxiety on a regular basis. Life expectancy, which economists see as sort of one of the kind of hallmark signs of the health of a society, life expectancy in the United States has been on the decline since 2014. The only other time in the history of the United States that life expectancy has declined was during World War I, when there was also a flu epidemic. Not even you know, the death of millions of soldiers during World War I was enough to bring the life expectancy down. There was an epidemic on top of it that brought the life expectancy down. And now, when we're living in this time of affluence and plenty, life expectancy is beginning to decline again. 
So the cracks in the foundation of this amazing secular experience are beginning to show. We're craving something that we can't really describe. And we have no idea where to find real life. What does it take to not just survive, but to thrive, to flourish, to truly live in this environment? So last week I shared with you um, some research that's been done by the Barna Group as they research trends related to Christianity and faith and spirituality. Um, and this was actually a global survey. They studied 26 countries and uh, researching the faith practices of millennials who grew up in Christian homes. And I, I realized after uh, my sermon last week that I really should have kind of given this disclaimer because millennials get a bad rap. And this is not about how awful millennials are. Uh, millennials really are the product of the generations that have come before them. And so their, their research uh, on, on the faith practices of millennials aren't to say, things used to be great, but millennials are ruining it, it now, because <laughs> that's not true. Uh, what it's saying is, this is kind of the, the direction we're going. When we look at the faith practices of younger people, uh, roughly 18 to 35 years old, we're seeing what the future holds for all of us. And so uh, you can see here, um, prodigals and nomads are people, prodigals who are people who uh, were raised in a Christian home who would say, I am not a Christian. And nomads are people who would still use the word Christian to define themselves, um, but they don't actively practice their faith. They don't go to church. They're not, they're not following Jesus in any tangible way. And, and what you can see there is that over 50%, 52% of people who grew up in a Christian home have essentially abandoned following Jesus in any meaningful way. The next group, 38%, um, this is the largest group in the United States, they're kind of trying to muscle it out. Uh, these are people who, they still go to church, but their lives are not being transformed by Jesus uh, in terms of their beliefs or their practices. We're trying to just hold on tight and hope that this works. Um, what we're seeing is that we live in a culture that no longer supports Christian faith. The systems and practices of our culture don't support Christian faith. What does that mean? I mean, just a small example, youth sports. When I was a kid, not that long ago, uh, you, there was never youth sports on Sunday. So you didn't have to make the, the choice of are we going to be involved in a church as a family or are we going to pursue youth sports. Uh, I mean, maybe in more competitive leagues in some, in some small ways, but you know, not, um, not nearly the extent to what we're experiencing now. Um, and so for many people, when the, the systems and the pressures of our culture are against Christian faith, it has actually shipwrecked our faith. And yet there is this sliver of people, 10%, that um, the Barna Group has called resilient disciples. And these are people who, they're, they're, not only has their faith not been shipwrecked, um, not only are they surviving, but they're actually thriving. That life in a culture that no longer supports their belief has actually uh, strengthened their faith, like a muscle that gets stronger with use. So, what does a resilient disciple look like? You know, if everybody's getting the flu, and you want to know how to stay healthy, you don't study the people that are getting sick, right? You look at the people that are surviving, that are staying healthy. And so what they have done, and uh, David Kenneman has summarized this in his book called Faith for Exiles, uh, really five characteristics 
of resilient disciples. And so this morning, what, what I'm going to do is dis, uh, dive into the first of those five characteristics. And um, the first characteristic of a resilient disciple is this. Resilient disciples experience the presence of God as a source of life. Resilient disciples experience the presence of God as a source of life. In a weary and busy age, in an age where it feels like no matter what you're doing specifically, you're doing it very quickly. (laughs) Resilient disciples are people who have tapped into a source of life outside of themselves. In a culture that says, you do you, resilient disciples have said, no, I experience life through intimacy with Christ. The presence of God is our source of life. Kurt Thompson is a doctor who wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. And in that book he said this, every newborn comes into the world looking for someone who's looking for them. Every newborn is born into the world looking for someone who's looking for them. I got to meet baby Jonah Merwin this week. And uh, isn't it amazing to see? Babies are so tiny. You always forget how tiny they are. I think he was over, just over six pounds when he was born. I was thinking about that quote, being born into the world, looking for someone who's looking for him. Do you know that you have a God who is looking for you? Psalm 1 describes two ways to live. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. How did that strike you when I read that? The way of the wicked. You know, the fascinating thing I think about about that is that the way of the wicked is not what we think it would be. It's not, you know, the wicked people are not those who are immoral and they just can't help stealing stuff all the time and um, they're just, you know, they never tell the truth. They're just awful people. Um, That's what we think of as wickedness. It's not bad, murdering, thieving people. Um, It's trying to live life without God at the center. It's characterized by scoffing, by cynicism. Uh, it's hearing the presence of God is the source of life. Right. Sounds nice. Uh, If only that were true. Scoffing. What does it look like when you live this way? What does it look like to live this way? Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like you are the victim of your circumstances? Like life is living you. Like like uh, no matter what you do, no matter how you start every week, you plan, you have this, and then stuff just invades, stuff takes over, uh, and you are at the mercy of your circumstances. Well, the result of living this way without God at the center, someone says that that way of life um, is that we end up like chaff. Chaff is, is the dead husk that surrounds uh, the wheat kernel. And so when in the ancient Near East, I guess today people still make flour, right? Um, but when you're making flour, you separate, you kind of through beating the, the, the wheat, you separate the, the husk uh, from the, the, the chaff from the kernel of wheat. And the kernel is ground down into flour. And uh, it's tossed up in the air and the, uh, the husk, this chaff, just blows away in the wind. If that's not a great description of life living you, being at the mercy of circumstances, uh, I don't know what is. 
someone contrasts this way of life with the way of the righteous, the way of life. It says that this is the blessed life. The blessed life. Now, we don't really use the word blessed except hashtag blessed, which just please don't. Like, <laughs> I, can, I can explain more, but I'm not going to spend time on it. Just please don't. But what does blessed mean? Um, really, the word blessed means happy. Um, but in a deeper sense, it means, uh, it means to be content. Um, it means that everything is right in your life. The word blessed in Hebrew uh, is really just is simply translated happy. Now, we live in a world where we think that we're pursuing happiness, and yet um, I, I read this article this week that was super helpful on this, talking about the distinction between happiness and pleasure. And we talk a lot about happiness but really what we're usually doing is pursuing the experience of pleasure. And at a like, neurobiochemical level, happiness and pleasure are two different things. Pleasure uh, is associated with the chemical dopamine, and dopamine gives you, you get a quick hit of dopamine, but as soon as it hits, it's gone, it doesn't last. Uh, and so that's why we can, uh, really, the experience of pleasure or, or dopamine is, is similar to addiction. That the more you experience uh, pleasure, because it doesn't last, you need more and more of it. But happiness, on the other hand, is, is, a, is associated with a chemical serotonin. And serotonin comes um, through connection with other people. Um, serotonin comes through giving away instead of consuming. Um, serotonin is what makes you feel happy. It stays with you. It brings you this, uh, this feeling of contentment, of, of everything being right in the world, of completion, of fullness. Interesting um, statement in this, um, in this article that I was reading said that the more pleasure we seek, the more unhappy we get. The more, more pleasure we seek, the more unhappy we get. I'll give you a quick example. Over the Christmas break with our kids a couple uh, you know, weeks ago, we did a lot of fun things. We took our kids to like a, a water slide park. We went to Knott's Berry Farm. I mean, a roller coaster is really the, um, the perfect picture of, of, happy, of uh, pleasure, right? It's, it's really fun, and then it's over, and then you've got to stand in line again to do it again. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, that was fun. It, it was enjoyable. There was a lot of arguing, a lot of standing in line. Uh, we also bought a couple, couple, couple board games. I know it sounds like we're a 1950s family now, but we just played some family games. And you know what? It's just really enjoyable to be with my kids, doing something not super exciting. Um, there is a sense of contentment, of happiness, of joy, a sense that everything is right in the world. Happiness, the blessed life, is about connection with people you love. It's about giving instead of taking. It is much simpler, and it, much, and it lasts much longer. That's what this psalm is talking about. Happiness, according to Psalm 1, comes from experiencing the presence of God. Experiencing the presence of God is what makes you content. The one who is blessed is like a tree, it says, whose roots going deep down into the river of the presence of God. Uh, what does that mean? It means you're not swayed by what's going on in the circumstances. Uh, you flourish even when it's not raining because you have roots that have dug down deep into the river of God's presence. Whatever is going around, around 
whatever's going on around you circumstantially in your work or with your kids or your relationships or you know, the stress of finances and bills that have to be paid, whatever's going on, you flourish and thrive because you are not tossed around by circumstantial stuff if you are rooted in God's presence. And it says that a person who lives this way has leaves that don't wither, and this person bears fruit in season. Now, I love this idea that it says uh, this person who is, who is content because uh, he or she is connected to the presence of God bears fruit in season because the pursuit of pleasure leads us to this place where we think that we should be bearing fruit constantly. <laughs> um, everything in my life should be better than it was yesterday or last week or last year. But that's not the way that fruit works, is it? Fruit grows in season. Um, always, every year, every quarter, every day has got to be better than the last, but that is not real life. Real life doesn't look like that. But the person who is connected to the presence of God, who has found real life, bears fruit in season. That means when it's appropriate. But there are times when our lives um, need to be pruned. And there are times when the field needs to just lay fallow. And yet there are also times when through um, the pruning of God, uh, we bear fruit. We bear fruit in season as it's appropriate. And so if you have roots that go down into the presence of God, you can weather times when it feels like everything is going against you. Uh, Rick Warren and his wife Kay are... Uh, Rick is the pastor of a, a small little church um, <laughs> nearby that you may have heard of called Saddleback Church, one of the largest churches in the, uh, in the country. Uh, I think it was 2014, their son tragically took his own life. And uh, I saw this recently on Twitter. Somebody asked Kay Warren, she said, somebody recently asked how I survived my son's suicide. I told him I've sent my spiritual roots deep into the character of God for more than 50 years. Circumstances tried to brutally rip out the tree of my faith, but the roots held. She's got to be thinking of Psalm 1 there. Uh, I was talking with a friend about dehydration this week, and he said, you know, the funny thing about dehydration is by the time you feel dehydrated, you already are. For 50 years, I have put my roots down into the character of God. By the time tragedy strikes, it's too late to grow those roots. They have to be there before tragedy strikes. The key to this kind of life, according to Psalm 1, is connecting to the presence of God. This is what resilience looks like. It's what it looks like to bounce back when life throws its worst at you. The resilient are those who come back stronger. The key is being connected to the presence of God. And this is true, this is clear, not just in Psalm 1. This is th uh, true throughout the entire Bible. In fact, one way, I don't think this is an overstatement. One way to tell the whole story of the Bible is to say that the Bible is the story of what God does to bring us into his presence. In the earliest chapters of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, um, Adam and Eve lived in paradise, and it was paradise because they lived in the presence of God. And uh, could you put this next slide up there? There's a quote from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's summarizing Genesis 1 and 2 this way. God breathed life into Adam and Eve. 
And when they opened their eyes, the first thing they saw was God's face, and God loved them with all his heart. And they were lovely because he loved them. Adam and Eve rebelled. They uh, decided they wanted to do life on their own. It's funny, this whole experience of secularism is not new. (laughs) It goes all the way back to the first man and woman trying to live life apart from God, and it had disastrous results. And so as the story progresses, um, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When sin and shame enters into the human experience because of sin, the impulse that Adam and Eve felt, the impulse that we each feel, is to hide from God's presence. They know their sin, they know their shame. They run away from God's presence. To have God's presence is to have life. And the whole rest of the Bible carries out this theme. Genesis 4, um, Adam, and Eve, uh, Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And God comes to Abel, or God comes to Cain and says, Where's your brother? And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment. Uh, well, okay, so the result here is um, Cain kills Abel. God says, Where's your brother? Cain says, It's not my problem. <laughs> really? <laughs> and uh, God says, As a result of what you have done, you're going to be a wanderer across the earth. And Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. The punishment that is more that he can bear is that he won't be in in God's presence. He'll be driven away from God's face. Many years later, God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. We know that God led them by his presence, that Israel camped around the presence of the Lord on every side. And yet through their sin and through their rebellion, uh, God, in a sense, you know, he gets so fed up with his people and he, and he says that uh, in, the, in the book of Exodus, he says, uh, I'm going to send you up into the promised land, the land that you're going to, but I'm not going to go with you because if I go with you, I will kill you. And, and, uh, and Moses pleads. He pleads with God. And Moses says, the only thing that we have is your presence. The thing that makes us different from all of the other people is that we have your presence, God. And God relents in Exodus 33. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The presence of God over and over again is the thing that sustains God's people. It's what makes God's people distinct. It's not that we are better, it's that we have the presence of God. Into the New Testament, we see, uh, obviously, this most clearly in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God. And then the New Testament holds out our future hope in Revelation 21. And it says that our future hope is this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The intimate presence of God is our hope. It is the source of our life. Church, do you know God? Have you met him? You know, it's, it's interesting as I do membership interviews, oftentimes I, I ask people to tell me the, the story of how they came to know God. And, and often you hear just great stories of people encountering God's presence for the first time. Sometimes you hear people say something like, I've always been a Christian. 
I always want to push back on that and say, tell me about how, you, how you've met God. I love it when people say, I've never known a time that I didn't know God, and yet I want to know how you've met God. A Christian is a person who knows God through Jesus. But here's the point. Sadly, I think many of us could tell the story of how we met God in the first place. And yet we seem to expect that the normal Christian life is a life not necessarily filled with the presence of God. Maybe there are these mountaintop experiences when we go to camp or we go to a uh, conference or, you know, if we hear a great sermon or something that sort of like strikes a chord and we feel like we're encountering the, the presence of God. The normal Christian life is meant to be a life lived in God's presence. Do you know that God wants to give you life and vitality through his presence with you? You have a God who gives you his face. Dallas Willard, in his book, God is Closer Than You Think, he writes of a little boy who had lost his mother. She had passed away. And uh, he says that, she, that this little boy was especially sad and lonely at bedtime. And his father would put him to bed, and he would fall asleep in his own bed, and he would wake up in the middle of the night and walk down the hallway to his dad's room. And he would crawl in bed with his dad, and his dad would put him, take him back to his own bed and put him, back to, put him back to bed in his own bed. But night after night and week after week, this continued to happen. And so eventually his father gave up. And this little boy would come down and crawl in bed with his dad in the middle of the night, and the dad would give him a hug and pull the covers around him and then roll back over and go back to sleep. And this little boy would grab his father's face in his hands and, and say, Dad... Dad, is your face turned towards me now? Dad, I, I want to see you, Dad. I have to have your face. <laughs> I was reminded this week as one of my sons, I was going out to just do errands, and, and he said, can I come with you? And I said, no, it's going to be boring. Just stay here. He said, Dad, I just want to be with you. Do you know that you have a father who wants to be with you? who brings you into his presence, that wants to sustain you, wants to fill your life. So the question then is, how? <laughs> right? How, how is that possible? So the second thing we see in this passage is that resilient disciples experience the presence of God through scripture and prayer. Psalm 1, this person, by the way, when it says... Uh, blessed is the man, the Bible is not excluding women, it's, it's, it's talking about the ideal person, you know, the man, who's the man? Uh, <laughs> the blessed man, the blessed man, it says his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We experience the presence of God as we meet him in scripture and in prayer. I know it doesn't specifically talk about prayer here, but I've come to believe that scripture and prayer are like two sides of the same coin. They're not distinct activities. They are, they are one and the same. Scripture is the voice of God directed towards me, towards you. Prayer is my voice, your voice directed back towards God. We experience God as we meet him in scripture and in prayer. But notice what the psalm says. The one who is content delights delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night. Now, you might be surprised to learn this, but not everybody delights 
in the Word of God. <laughs> you know, uh, in, in fact, many of us, uh, and I, I include myself in this at various times in my life, though we would say we believe the Word of God to be true, we don't find reading it to be a delight. Um, I was actually, somebody was arguing with me not that long ago saying something like, you know, when I, back when I was in middle school, there was all this pressure in my church experience to have my daily quiet time and it just felt like a burden. And, uh, and I felt so much guilt and shame and this person was telling me, you know, it, you really shouldn't encourage people to be reading the Bible. It's just, you're, you're laying up guilt on people. And, and, and what I would want to say is I'm really, really sorry that the Bible has become a burden to you because it is the voice of God speaking to you. If that characterizes your experience at all, I want to say I'm deeply, deeply sorry that we have turned the life-giving word of God into a chore because it is not a chore. You know, a chore is very different than a delight. On Friday morning, I said to one of my boys, please go downstairs and take the trash and the recycling to the curb. And he looked at me with such a big smile on his face. He said, thank you, Dad, for asking me. No, it didn't, 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 didn't happen. It's a chore. It's a burden. It's something that you have to do. The Word of God is not a chore. It is a delight. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, think about what he said. You don't live just by bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, when was the last time any of us went more than a few waking hours without eating something? Uh, you know, we think about that word meditate on the law of God, meditating on it day and night. We... There's a problem in English because when we hear the word meditate, we think of Eastern meditation, which is about emptying yourself, but meditation in the Christian tradition is about filling yourself with the presence of God. Uh, the, the imagery in the Bible is, is that of a cow that, that chews on its food and swallows it, but it you know, kind of yucks it back up and chews on it a little bit more because the cow's got four stomachs. It's trying to get everything he can out of that food. That's what it means to meditate on the Word of God. It means to experience God's word, not just, you know, in brief, isolated encounters, but on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment uh, sort of a way. So again, when was the last time you went that more than a few waking hours without eating something? You know, if I went a few days without eating, I mean, you would all know about it. I would talk about it a lot. <laughs> um, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'm fasting, it's awful. <laughs> which isn't what Jesus said we should do but that's what I would do um, trying to live the Christian life without regularly immersing yourself in the Bible it's like trying to run a marathon while holding your breath we don't read the Bible because it's a chore we read it because it's like oxygen it's like sustenance and so friends this is the main reason why you know Ashley announced a few minutes ago that we're doing this Discipleship 101 course because I know that many of us have very little experience reading the Bible and we want to help you develop the rhythm of reading the Bible in prayer. We're not doing this because we're trying to put more events on your calendar. We're doing this because we're trying to put more life in your living. We want you to live before you die. 
You know, so often Christians talk about life after death. I wonder if we're going to live before death. <laughs> we want to teach you the rhythms of Scripture and prayer. And so this is a nine-week course. You can sign up for this. I think it's going to cost you $30. You'll be done before Easter. But it will help you develop a rhythm, a habit of experiencing God's presence in Scripture and prayer. Not because you need more to do, but because you need more life. It's interesting, in this research I mentioned that the Barna Group did, uh, of Christians, those who grew up in Christian homes, they discovered that the main difference between resilient disciples and cultural Christians is this issue. Uh, David Kinnaman, in his book, Faith for Exiles, writes this, It's easy to call yourself a Christian. It's much less common, however, to experience the presence of Jesus in a regular life-giving way. If you look at the externals, um, resilient disciples and cultural Christians look very similar. They both go to church regularly. The difference is that resilient disciples pray and read the Bible, and cultural Christians don't. Look at some of these um, uh, questions that they asked. Um, Reading the Bible makes me feel closer to God. I don't know if you can read that. 44% of cultural Christians said yes, compared to 87% of resilient disciples. Prayer feels like a vibrant part of my life. 39% compared to 64%. I regularly experience God's presence at church. 43% of cultural Christians, 75% of resilient disciples. My relationship with Jesus brings me deep joy and satisfaction, 48% compared to 90% of resilient disciples. Experiencing the presence of God on a regular, ongoing basis is the key factor in living a life where you're just trying to grit it out and hopefully you can make it to the end without giving up on Jesus and actually knowing him as a vital, life-giving presence in your life. So which of these... It's true of you. I understand that for many of us, we are in unfamiliar territory, even those of us who have been Christians for a long time. When we talk about reading the Bible in a life-giving way, it's not religious activity, it's not a chore, it's not something we have to do. It's not because we need something on our calendar, it's because we need more life. But God loves you. And Jesus said, I have come that you may have life to the fullest, and we experience him as the source of our life as we encounter him in his word and as we pray. The presence of God brings us life. Now, I know that as soon as I say that, many of us are thinking something like this. You know, that sounds good, and, uh, you know, I read the Bible, um, you know, from time to time. I believe it's true, Uh, but man, there's a lot going on in my life. And, um, you know, with work and with with family, and I got a job, and I got to pay the bills, and those things take a lot of time, and so I'm just doing the best I can. And what I want to say to you is I hear you. And it's because life is so busy, and because there are so many demands on your time and attention and energy that you need to experience God's presence as a daily rhythm in your life. It's because of all that's going on in your life that you need God's presence. Now think about this. Think about your life as like a water tank. This is the point at which Jason needed the slides and so I didn't put a water tank together. (laughs) 
sometimes my internal monologue stays, comes out. <laughs> a water tank, okay? And there's all sorts of things draining your water tank. Uh, your job, your relationships, the bills you've got to pay. Uh, all these things are like hoses removing water out of your tank. And we tend to think that the, uh, the, you know, the, the key then to, to, to keeping your tank full is to have an input that fills your tank. And so we tend to think as an input the, of the inputs as things like money or the next promotion or the big sale we make or you know, an occasional uh, vacation or more and more we just uh, distract ourselves from the reality that the tank is running dry by scrolling social media which incidentally is designed to give you a hit of dopamine so that you'll keep going. The presence of God as we encounter him in scripture and prayer is like the rain that fills your tank. What does the psalmist say? My cup overflows. And if you are beginning your day and throughout the course of your day you're experiencing the presence of God through scripture and prayer, your tank is full and so all of these things that are removing all the outputs of your life aren't bleeding you dry because God is giving life to you. God is going to provide for you. He loves you. He knows that you need a job. <laughs> he knows that you have bills to pay. And so saying, this doesn't make you a better person, it doesn't make God love you more, but reading, developing a, a rhythm of reading God's word and praying is going to be a source of life for you is not a way to say, hey, there's just one more thing that you really need to do in your life that feels like it's sucking you dry. It's, it's saying, actually, you need an input. You need something breathing life into you. And the one who's breathing life into you, he knows all about you. He knows that you need to eat. He knows that you need a job. He's going to provide. He's not asking you to become like a monk and move to the desert and give up everything to study the Bible and to die of starvation in six weeks or something like that. He's going to provide for you. He wants to give you life. He wants you to truly live. He wants to give you himself. And so, if you're feeling like that sounds great in theory, but you just don't have the time to make it happen, then let me just ask you this. Are you happy? I mean, are you happy? <laughs> are you flourishing? Are you like the one planted by a stream of water, yielding fruit in season, and your leaves do not wither? Because if you are, then I guess just keep doing what you're doing. But I have yet to meet a person who has said that they're happy in almost five years living in Orange County. And so if you're at this point in your life where you couldn't say, I'm flourishing, I'm thriving, I'm happy, I'm content, then maybe it's time to try something different. Because friends, here's the good news. God wants to sustain you with his life. He created you to live in his presence, and when we rebelled and tried to do life without him, he came to find us. And Jesus, God with us, we see what it looks like to live a life. Jesus was always kind of sneaking away to spend time with his Father. Jesus shows us what it looks like to live a moment-by-moment -moment life of a deep awareness of the presence of God. And yet, as he's betrayed on the cross for the first time in eternity, God the Son does not get the face of God the Father. On the cross, God turns his back on Jesus. Why? 
God turns his back on Jesus so that he will never turn his back on you. And in dying, Jesus releases a new life-giving force into the world. Before he died, Jesus said, it is better for you that I go because I will send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will come and live within you. You now have the presence of God as a source of life in your body. So are you living a happy life? Are you flourishing? Or another way to talk about blessedness is to talk about wholeness. Holiness is wholeness. Well, secularism is an attempt to live a life of progress without presence. Those who are happy are pursuing a life of wholeness where God is not just one aspect of my life. I talk to Christians all the time who we kind of act like, I believe in God and there's all these other things going on in my life. And yet the presence of God uh, as the life-giving source uh, in our life is the key to bringing all of those things together so that God is not just one thing on my plate. He's actually the thing that holds my entire life together. I, love, I could talk about this for hours. I'm going to wrap it up, though, don't worry. Let me finish with this. I was reading something recently that was talking about the reality that, um, that, that people who study uh, public health say that many places in the United States are now considered food deserts. Uh, food deserts are places, usually urban areas, where people, the population is lower income and largely dependent on public transportation. And in these food deserts, there are places where you almost literally cannot get a healthy meal. Uh, there are fast food restaurants and there are sort of corner convenience stores selling processed food, but you really cannot get a healthy meal. And the point, as it relates to public health, is that you are not going to be able to live a healthy lifestyle if you don't have access to healthy food. And friends, I wonder if we are living in a word desert in our time, in our society, in our culture that says life can be great without God, if we are actually trying to live lives of flourishing apart from the very thing that God promises will make us healthy. And so friends, what you need to know is this, healthy societies come when God's people rediscover God's word. Uh, before the nation of Israel went into exile during the reign of King Josiah, like the one positive blip in the history of really, really bad kings leading Israel. Um, Josiah said, let's clean out the temple of God. And apparently there was so much stuff and clutter there that the Bible had been lost. And it says as they were clearing out the temple, they rediscovered the word of God. And the people rededicated themselves to God. And they followed him in a time a flourishing uh, set in. Healthy societies uh, do not emerge because we finally get the right opinions and the right politicians. I'm not saying those things don't matter. But healthy societies grow when God's people rediscover God's word. Our churches are healthy. When we stop critiquing each other and when we stop critiquing the world around us, and we immerse ourself, ourselves in the word of God. Our church will be healthier, not when we get better you know, programs or preaching or when we have these moments where we are inspired, but when we embrace God's word. 
Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, are you looking for life? God is holding it out to you in his word. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the very word of God made flesh, that you have come to dwell amongst us. You have come to help us know what God is like, to, uh, to behold the glory of God and to make it possible for us to live again in his presence. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would change us into people who love your word, even if it's just out of curiosity, even if it's just out of desperation, even if it's just out of a sense of something's got to change, God, would you help us as a church to embrace uh, your word, not as a chore, but as a way of life. We pray, Jesus, in your name.